people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. For the last 16 years, Doreen Douglas has worked at Constant Consumer Magazine without a promotion. She was quiet. Doris said. Conservative. It's Doreen. And inconspicuous. Excuse me. Until the day. Today's the big day. They fired half the staff. It's a massacre. For this unassuming copy editor, keeping her job becomes an opportunity to do a little corporate downsizing of her own. Doreen, you're done, could you come hold the light? For everyone that's ever punched a clock comes a dark comedy about what happens when the clock starts punching back. <laughs> Carol Kane. Look at this mess. I am going to have to clean it up. Molly Ringwald. I can hear someone breathing. Who is this? Gene Triplehorn. Let's go to lunch. <laughs> no! Office killer. You're a lifesaver. Not at all. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Dahlia Schweitzer. Hi, it's always so fun to be here. Also back in the booth is Mr. Chris Tashu. I apologize for this in advance. Office killer, Carol Kane. Fa 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 Come on, it's pretty good. Give me give me credit where credit's due for that I'm one. I'm glad That's you cool. apologized. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, hey, I, I prefaced it. Mike always wants you to show up with something. So that was something, something with a capital S. We are kicking off Shocktober 2022 with a look at Cindy Sherman's Office Killer. Released in 1997, the film stars Carol Kane as Doreen Douglas, a mousy proofreader at a magazine that is downsizing. After accidentally electrocuting the office lech, Doreen begins recreating her office life at home with her overbearing mother. We will be spoiling the film as we go along, so if you haven't seen Office Killer, please turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So, Chris, was this a new one for you? I want to say I, most people haven't seen this, I would assume, myself included, and can see why I'd never seen it, and I can see why... I'm not going to say I can see why most people haven't seen it, but I could see why at the time when it came out, the way it was treated, I think it's a lot more forward thinking and a lot more, well, shockingly topical, obviously, in 2022. But it's one of those movies where now that I've seen it, I wonder who else I know has seen it because it's just it works so well for a movie that I had never heard of before you mentioned it to me, Mike, which is often the case when I come on your show. It's like, oh, I'd never heard of it. And now I can't unthink of it. And I'm actually a little offended, Chris, that I'm not the one who told you about this movie. Given that I've known you for two plus years, I kind of surprised as well. I know. I don't know how it didn't come up when we did I, when I was on your podcast. This movie sort of became like my like raison d'etre for a while. I became a huge Cindy Sherman fan in college, and I have very fond memories of being in the the basement. I think it was the basement or the you know the depths of my college library on microfiche, uh, and I still actually have tons of Cindy Sherman articles. 
in my files. And I, I keep telling her, I'm like, you've got to come over one time and see this because I think a lot of them probably haven't been digitized. And so I'm sure there's some fun things in there. I wrote like a big paper on her and she was very influential for my own artwork. So I was definitely like, you know, paying attention. And when the movie came out, I went and I saw it in New York. I'm pretty sure it was at the film forum. And I wherever it was that it was screening, I think it was screening for like a week. And I came and I saw it. And I remember at the time being a little bit confused because, you know, her her photographs are, you know, her in these various personas. And it was kind of weird to see this movie in which she doesn't appear. And then it's a narrative. And, you know, all of her photographs don't really have a narrative, like they might have an implied narrative, but this actually like tells a story. So, you know, I kind of like filed it away, sort of like a curiosity. And then when I was in my master's program, and I was looking for a topic to write about for my thesis, and my my chair at the time was really mad at me because he wanted me to write about Andy Warhol. And I didn't want to write about Andy Warhol because I sort of felt like that market has been saturated. And so I kept proposing topics and they just kept shooting them down. And finally, I think I had like two months left in which to write my master's thesis. And it was just like, I need a topic. And they knew that, you know, I had this, that I was sort of like a little mini Cindy Sherman expert. And they said, you know, why don't you write about Cindy Sherman? And I said, you know, there are a gazillion books about her photos. And again, I'm not interested in contributing to a conversation that's already been saturated. I'm often drawn to things that people aren't talking about, you know, or the things that are sort of unspoken. And so I was really intrigued by the fact that no one talks about this movie. And kind of as you were just saying, like, nobody knows about this movie. And it's really weird because, first of all, She's probably one of the most well-known contemporary photographers working today. She has, as I said, a gazillion books written about her photographs. She's had exhibits everywhere. And the era when this came out was when we had Johnny Mnemonic by Robert Longo. It was like this moment where all these artists were making movies and they, you know, it was like these great kind of buzzy things. And so then, you know, Cindy makes this movie and nobody talks about it. And I was like, that's so weird. So then I started researching it and I, you know, hustled and wrote my master's thesis on it in two months. And then just, you know, was like, this has to go out into the world because, you know, I believed so much in this movie. And I think one of the things that really sort of upset me was, you know, and I didn't know Cindy at the time that I was working on this. And, you know, she's someone who she works by herself. You know, she very famously works by herself. She doesn't have an assistant in the studio. She only shoots her like there's nobody else there. You know, she's kind of shy and introverted. And I can't imagine the sort of mental, emotional challenge of going out and making this movie and working with this team of people to do this thing that she'd never done. And as you kind of said, it's a fantastic movie. And it was as if everyone sort of collectively decided that this was this really embarrassing faux pas, and they were just going to sweep it under the rug and never talk about it again. And there was even a review in the New York Times that came out. And I thought it was really interesting because they didn't have the film critic review it. They had the art critic review it. 
And the art critic said something along the lines of, you know, because Cindy's had so much success, a little bit of failure will be good for her. You know, this just kind of became my cause. And I just kept working on this book. And it took me five years to find a publisher for this book, which also blew my mind because, again, you know, every art library has like a Cindy Sherman bookshelf. And I just figured everyone would want something about her movie. You know, like, how has this just been universally left out of the equation? And I just got rejected from so many publishers that by the time Intellect said, you know, let's do this, I did this sort of like, you know, the cartoon double take where it was almost like, are you sure? <laughs> you can't possibly really want this book. So yeah, it was just really this labor of love for this fantastic movie that somehow, and it slipped through the, I mean, I talk about this in the book, but it slipped through the cracks for a bunch of different reasons. You know, like it wasn't artsy enough to be embraced by the art crowd. And it wasn't sort of mainstream enough to be, you know, embraced by the mainstream crowd. It has this really great sense of humor that Miramax's target audience, teenage boys, or that's what they thought was the target audience for the movie, they didn't get. And this was during the era where Miramax would buy films without having watched them. And so they would just like snatch things up and then they would do these sort of kind of focus group screenings. And then they would determine based on the focus group screenings if they were going to release the movie and if so, how they would market it and whatever. And they were like, oh, it's a horror movie. And so they screened it for teenage boys and the teenage boys were bummed that there wasn't more Molly Ringwald. And of course, you know, Carol Kane's not a sex object. No one wants to see more of her body. So Miramax just kind of shelved it. And the movie just sort of disappeared. And when I was fighting and I was fighting with Miramax to get the right to have an image from the movie on the cover. And there's like this whole weird thing where if you have shots from the movie in the book, that's technically fair use. But if you have a shot from the movie on the cover, that's considered advertising. And then you have to often pay for that. And when I was arguing with them, because they wanted to charge me like a gazillion dollars to have this image, and they kept calling it office killers, plural. First of all, they got the name of the movie wrong. And then if you watch the movies, I mean, this isn't a big spoiler, but there's only one killer. So it was just like, clearly they hadn't even seen it. I don't know. So there's just a lot to be indignant about with this movie. The people who released the movie didn't know the name of the movie. Correct. Well, they didn't end up releasing it. It was Strand, right? Miramax bought the distribution rights and then shelved it. And Miramax was on the version that I saw. They bought it and they bought it from... James Seamus and Ted Hope's company. And what was interesting was James Seamus and Ted Hope had had this idea that they were going to make a um, slew of what they referred to as sort of smart horror films. And Office Killer was the first. And then they were going to, you know, they were going to make a bunch more. And after Office Killer, just as I said, kind of became this sort of unspoken faux pas, then that was the end of that project as well. For the rubes like Chris and I, who are in the Midwest, who the hell is Cindy Sherman? Why should we care about Cindy Sherman? Because other than Robert Maplethorpe, I don't know any photographers of the last 30 years. Cindy Sherman is, in addition to being an incredibly sweet and kind person, is an amazingly talented photographer who was really, really groundbreaking for many different reasons, but she sort of primarily discussed in terms of what she did for how do I put it? Just sort of like the image of the woman 
for lack of a better phrase. So basically, all of her images are of herself, like she is the model, but they aren't self-portraits. In all the images, it's her, but she disguises herself. And it's kind of amazing. I have one of her images that's four of her in a row. And when I took it to get it framed, the person was kind of like looking at it weird. And I said, yes, that's the same person. And you see her, you know, like four of her, and she looks like a different, I mean, her ability to transform herself is it's remarkable. She's like a shapeshifter. And she has, she's been dressing up since she was a kid. There's like, yeah, I've seen very cute photos of her. Like there's a kid, a photo of her as a kid where she dressed up as an old lady. And it's just amazing. She just, she disappears into the costume. But anyway, so the, the work that sort of launched her was um, a series that was called the Untitled Film Stills that came out in the late 1970s. And she So she dated Robert Longo in college and they moved to New York together. And as I mentioned before, she's, you know, sort of shy and private and was a photographer at SUNY Purchase and she didn't really know anybody in New York. So she just sort of turned the camera on herself. So she's always loved to dress up. And when she was in college, she would sort of, you know, dress up as different characters for college parties. Like this is just something that she's always loved to do. and She's very good at. And Robert Longo suggested that she document it. So the untitled film stills are a series of images, black and white, of herself. And the idea is she's not referencing a specific character. So it's not like, oh, in this one, she is Marilyn Monroe from Some Like It Hot, right? She's not like literally recreating a frame from that movie. The idea is just that she's supposed to look vaguely familiar, in all these images. And she's playing out all these tropes of women that we see in movies. And so you see all of her images and you're like, oh, that's familiar. That's probably from this movie or that movie. And one of the things that she's famous for, the reason it's called the untitled film stills is all her works are untitled. So it's always like untitled number, whatever. And she, that's one of the things that she does where she refuses to give her photographs a title because she likes that sort of ambiguity, which is also why Office Killer was such a departure for her. For all of the history of art, you know, it's you know, it's been really about the male gaze and the man behind the camera taking a picture of the woman. And so there was something. And again, it's not that she was the very first person to do this, but she was she really kind of put it on the map, this idea of the woman behind the camera photographing herself, but photographing herself as other women and sort of playing on this idea of these roles that women keep falling into. And that was, you know, that was really just kind of put her on the map. And the images are amazing and they still get exhibited and they have just as much power now as as they did back then. And it's really remarkable that they are all her. And then she's, you know, she continues to make work and she has these amazing series. She had one of her more recent series was sort of about aging film stars. And it's like this very sort of Norma Desmond-esque kind of quality. And it's sort of her reflection on aging. But another thing that she's known for, she famously says very little about her photographs because she really wants people to interpret them for themselves. So she's not, you know, she might say this has to do with aging, but she's very terse about things. And it was really cute. There was one time where we introduced, so she's she's shy. She doesn't do a lot of public speaking. And they had a screening of Office Killer in New York. And she told me, you know, that they, they'd convinced her to do it and kind of figured that she wasn't looking forward to that. So I said, you know, do you want me to come and help introduce it? And she was like, oh, my God, that would be great. 
So I came and I gave a little spiel about the movie and sort of its background and whatever. (laughs) I kind of turned it over to her and she came up and she basically said something like, you know, I hope you like the movie. Bye. (laughs) I ran off. So, yes, she's a very, very important photographer, um, you know, partly for what she has done for women behind the camera and also for what she's done for women in front of the camera. So like Chris, I hadn't heard of this movie before. What really brought it to the fore was you, Dahlia. This was back in, gosh, 2018, maybe earlier than that. Whenever I was on vacation reading your viral book, in the back of that, it's Dolly Schweitzer, the author of this, and then had you know the thing about Office Killer. And I was like, I've never heard of this before. And then when I saw the cover, I didn't even recognize Carol Kane. I thought that it was a made-up movie because I had never heard of it before. Because <laughs> what? You've heard of everything. Well, not to sound conceited, but I've heard of a few things. And I'm just like, what the hell is this? And I didn't recognize Carol Kane, so I didn't think that it was an actress that I had known. And I'm just like, what is this? And so I finally picked up the book and I was reading about it. I was like, no, no, this is an actual movie. Like as you start to talk about Gene Triplehorn and, and Carol Kane and Molly Ringwald, I'm just like – Wow. Okay. What the hell movie is this? Cause again, I had seen a bunch of Gene Triplehorn films. Of course, I had seen a bunch of Molly Ringwald films. I always enjoy the stuff that she made post Brat Pack. Of course, I love Carol Kane. No matter what she's in, I just absolutely love her. And so I was so confused by this. And then that it came out in 1997. It's still, you're riding the coast of that independent film movement that was kicked off. And I hate to say it, kicked off by Tarantino and, and Pulp Fiction was the thing that really put it on the map. And then there were so many films afterwards that were just kind of in that Miramax camp. And here's another Miramax film. And if anything, they were always known for just promoting the shit out of their films. And again, I never heard of this. I'm just like, how the hell did I miss this? And also, you mentioned the people in front of the camera, but behind the scene. I mean, Christine Vachon produced this. James Seamus produced this. Todd Haynes worked on the script. I mean, it's like, it's very strange that this movie just, as I said, just really got swept under the rug. And then I read some of those reviews from the time, and my God, they were vicious, just vicious talking about how inept it was that there's no thrills whatsoever that it's not funny it's not scary it's not anything there was one of the cindy sherman like a book about cindy sherman that i was reading for research and one of them said i can't remember how they phrased it but it was along the lines of how cindy sherman has intentionally distanced herself from this movie which i mean just because no one else is talking about it and then i read another thing that said that you know that cindy you know, basically did very little on this movie, which is completely, I mean, she, you know, this was, she worked on the story going back to Carol Kane being almost unrecognizable. Cindy drew in Carol Kane's eyebrows every day for shooting. I mean, it was, you know, she was involved with every aspect of this. So it makes me angry on behalf of all dismissed artists everywhere, but especially women. Yeah. It was Stephen Holden's review in the New York times. It said, When it comes to the basic nuts and bolts of storytelling, Office Killer is sadly inept. It doesn't offer a single moment of visceral or emotional electricity. I've introduced many screenings of this movie. So I've not only have I seen it many times at home, but I've seen it many times in theaters. And I can predict when audience members are going to squeal and when they're going to laugh. I mean, it's like 
the response, the the in the flesh responses to this movie are always electric. Yeah, I don't. It's almost like they saw a different movie. I I really I don't understand. I also think, and this is something that Dahlia, when you were on my show moons ago, scary stories we tell, we talked about haunted houses and your book book on that at the time. This is like such a true crime adjacent serial killer thing that now is the time for this movie to have come out. Like this movie would kill now, which I've we've said that before on all kinds of things on your show, Mike, and on my show. And I'm sure Dahlia, you have things you could point to as well. It's like if this had come out just ten years later we would be having a different conversation. People wouldn't be dismissing it outright. I mean, there are plenty of movies that have been dismissed outright that now are considered classics. But at the time, people were like, I mean, Blade Runner is a great example, obviously. But it's weird. Like this movie, if this movie had come out 10 years later, I think it would be, and it would still feel the same. It would still feel, and it would still have the same feel, look the same probably even. But I think the world would have been a little bit more... I don't know, set up, ready for something like this post 9-11. I mean, the world pre 9-11 is not ready for something like this. This is pretty, it's just pretty, it's not serious, but it's pretty dark, like pitch black dark. I think Cindy's a genius in many ways, but I think one of the things that's amazing about this movie is how prescient it is. And there's a part where she's talking about like the computer becoming her best friend you know, because the movie is, uh, you know, it's happening right at the time where like email is kind of coming into the workplace and like, you know, what what it's like to sort of send a message from home and get that, you know, get the ding on your computer and the idea of bodies disappearing from the workplace because you can now work from home. And, you know, so to see it now through our lens in 2022, it's like, oh, my God, this is our reality. So I do think that the movie was ahead of its time, but also you know, it speaks a lot to our over-dependence on genre and how we need movies to fit into these neat categories and the sort of the importance of marketing, you know, and it makes me think of like the backlash for a movie like Out of Sight or Drive, you know, where the they were marked, like Out of Sight was marketed as sort of like a summer blockbuster and then people went to see it and it's not a summer blockbuster, right? And people thought that Drive was going to be this action movie and then it wasn't and they got mad. So I also think part of it has to do with how the movie is presented to people, you know, and the fact that it's not, it's not really scary. Per, I mean, it's really a black comedy. You know, if you had to put a label on it, it's the black comedy. So if you go into this movie and you expect it to be, the Conjuring or Hereditary, it's not going to do that, right? And if you expect it to be Basquiat, it's not going to, you know, I mean, it. it is what it is. But if you don't have the right label on it, I think maybe people just get confused. I don't know. I'm, I'm really sort of at a loss for like that review that you just quoted, because it's like, did we see the same movie? I can't remember. There was a review that talks about how like the cinematography is terrible. And it's like, what are you talking about? Every frame is like a Cindy Sherman photograph. So it's bewildering. You know what this movie reminded me a lot of? It was something we watched last year, Mike, for Wake Up Heavy. Reminds me a lot of Deranged. It has that like same feel to it. And it's, I mean, this is a character study, right? I mean, I think at the heart of this movie, obviously, it's a Carol Kane performance and a character study about her character. And I guess in a lot of ways, why or maybe why she is the way that she is, which I think is always what anybody wants to know about a serial killer, because I guess she is one. Let's just call it what it is. I find these kinds of movies interesting because it's such a nasty subject matter to tackle. And I think the subject matter is immediately off-putting 
because you have a character in this movie, similarly to Deranged, similarly to the uh, the Dahmer movie that came out that had Jeremy Renner in it, that essentially got him a bunch of jobs in Hollywood. You have a movie that's tackling someone who ate people and fucked their corpses. And in this, you've got a woman who is playing with dead bodies, dead children even. It's not for the faint of heart. Like, I think you're automatically putting yourself into a very weird spot making a movie about a serial killer. But at the same time, as someone who's into that kind of stuff, like, it's it's got my attention immediately. But I get why people are like, oh. But then you have a movie like Delicatessen, which people love. Well, then you have Pulp Fiction coming out where there's just people getting murdered with wanton abandon and people quoting Sam Jackson before he blows someone away. Like, I'm sorry. It's really no different than this. Just one has, you know, funny music and ha-has. This is, the humor here is less ha-ha, but it's still there. Well, and then just, just to play devil's advocate, how differently would we have received Pulp Fiction if it had been directed by a woman? Again, you know, necessarily want to play the misogyny card but it just it does make you think because there are all these movies that i do think are that it should be sort of in the same category and the fact that it isn't just makes me wonder why and i do think part of it was that miramax used the wrong focus group you know the target audience for this movie is not i don't think teenage boys or maybe that you know they told teenage boys this is a horror movie and of course it's not and so the teenage boys i don't know but I don't know who the target audience would have been at the time. Like, who would have watched this movie at the time? That's my point. Like, it's not teenage boys, but if it's not teenage boys, who is it? That's the problem. Because it's found its audience, or I think it's starting to, I think you would agree, Dahlia, starting to pick up more momentum. It has to, with something this good, at least, hopefully due to Mike's show and your book. But I could see not knowing what to do with it, like watching it and just being like, what do you want me to do here? Who's going to watch this? And that's the sad thing, because it shouldn't have been who's going to watch this. It's how are we going to get people to watch it? Because it's so good. Not worrying about finding the audience, just hoping that the audience will come to it. And like we see that now and with stuff on streaming, it's easier to find things. But that's the other thing. I mean, they weren't making this easy to find after it came out. No, they shelved it. I mean, they totally put it in deep storage. And then to go back to people sort of revisiting it, it was on the Criterion channel last October. Whoa. That's quite the change. And I know like when Cindy had a, her retrospective at the Broad Museum in L.A., it was before I, I moved. So maybe it was like 2018-ish, 2017. They had the movie playing on loop in one of the rooms in the exhibition, uh, which I think was kind of cool because I know like MoMA, for instance, had a screening of it while they had her retrospective. So at least that's good because it's part of the conversation. But the idea of having it sort of on loop, making it seem like, you know, this is art and you walk into the room and you can sit and you watch as much as you want. And so hopefully it is now being included more and more in conversations about her work. But it's like, you know, the movie is from 1997. It took long enough. There are plenty of things that are never going to see any release ever on anything. I mean, I guess the question is, is this isn't on Kino or Shout or Criterion in a physical medium, though, which is so weird because, again, like this feels just right in that wheel. I mean, even you could even make the case for Shudder. You could make the case for Shudder. I'm not saying it would be a good. Yeah, I don't know why it's not on Shudder. I don't know. I don't. I mean, even now it's so hard to find this movie. Which sucks, because like that is the initial entry point. It's like finding it to begin with is hard enough. Like, okay. Chris, I really like what you said about deranged, especially the whole idea of 
Ed Gein playing with the bodies, or not Ed Gein, what was it, Ezra or something? Ed Gein. Call him what he is. The whole thing, this movie reminded me a lot of Peaches Christ's All About Evil, and that's about a female filmmaker who is staging these horror scenes and then murdering people on film and making those into little art films and stuff and becomes this you know major force in San Francisco with all of these little art films that she's showing where she's basically murdering people and you know is it real is it not real of course it is real but people think that it's not you know oh my god your special effects look great kind of thing those three films would make a great triple feature just to have all of these especially having the female serial killer and having Peaches Christ behind the camera and that one making all about evil. I thought that was, it would be a really nice comparison of these. But I mean, this movie, you know, we talk about how it was kind of at the wrong time or the wrong marketing, but my God, did I feel a lot? I felt a lot of 2009 with downsizing and all of that, you know, uh, especially, you know, I survived the, the dot bomb of the early 2000s. And so having this magazine that's sending people home, I'm just like, okay, that's very similar to what's really happening in the industry. And also the name of the magazine, Constant Consumer. <laughs> but then it reminded me of 2020 so much, especially with Mr. Michaels going around spreading his germs every place and everyone has his cold. I mean, this whole thing of him spreading his cold around, very, very sexualized, very, very AIDS-esque, very venereal of him passing this around. But between the disease that's in the office and then sending people home to work remotely, I'm just like, yeah, I experienced this two years ago. It was very much of its era, right? In that it was responding to sort of the, the combination of AIDS teaching us about the weaknesses of our immune system. And there's this sort of theme throughout the movie about the dangers of physical contact. And that kind of keeps coming up again and again. And, you know, and then, of course, yes, Gary going around spreading his cold like it's an STD. And then also, you know, the introduction of email and people sort of disappearing from the office, which is, of course, what we had in COVID. And then also the corruption you know, the manager, so sort of like the 1% stealing money from the company. I mean, it's just fascinating. And those emails becoming little poison pen letters, her spreading dissent and covering your tracks a little bit. But then also when she emails Gene Triplehorn, it's like, hey, we know what you're up to. Love that. Yeah, the whole thing of that there's so many things happening in this that it isn't just Carol Kane is a nut and, you know, she goes crazy, you know, we get her backstory, but then there's the whole thing of the skimming off the top, the magazine closing, you know, how much of that is to do with Jean Triplehorn's character? Is she actually responsible for them having to send these people home and cut down on their hours because she has taken so much money from the company? Another thing that, that I think is so great about the movie is that it's so female dominated, you know, that you have... You know, the, the dream triple horn character, obviously female. You have Barbara Sukova as like the editor of the magazine. You have Carol Kane as the killer. You know, I mean, it's, you know, that alone should have made it sort of like a cult classic, you know, to have a horror film that's so dominated by women. And I was going to say another movie that this really reminds me of, at least the office parts, a movie that I love. First time I was ever on this show. It reminds me a lot of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. 
if if in Glengarry Glen Ross they were actually killing one another for real, <laughs> as opposed to just backstabbing one another metaphorically, because in that I mean in that narrative it's all about backstabbing each other and getting to the top and surviving the rat race. And then in this movie, it's kind of the office parts of that. I mean, you get the stuff with Carol Kane at home, which kind of is more into character study and serial killers and nature and nurture and all that. But the stuff at the office, I was thinking like, this is like, again, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross could be right in there. And Dahlia, like you mentioned, a movie, this movie has all, essentially it's a, a very much mostly female led. That movie is all male led. So it would be an interesting counterpoint to kind of see that movie. And then this movie where it's like, and the limiters are off. They're they're killing one another, or Carol Kane is killing half of the office. But it's it's it would be an, another interesting kind of comparison because it is this like '90s office that exists in movies, and it was in reality to some respect, like Swimming with Sharks. But it's the same kind of like shitty, shitty, shitty '90s office. How can we do something with that? And I think Office Killer really deserves to be in the conversation of like a novel office movie doing something novel with an office setting that I haven't seen in anybody else's movies. No. And I think it's also significant just, you know, because we haven't given our listeners enough spoilers. She isn't just killing people because she's, you know, she's crazy. She's killing them because she thinks she's saving them because she's bringing them home and recreating the office in her basement, you know? So that's this other thing where it's this idea of the toxic workplace and she's sort of saving these people and recreating a friendlier workplace where they, you know, like that. there's like that scene where she removes Barbara Sukova's nails and it's like, oh, you're going to be more comfortable now. You know, like she thinks she's caring for them in this like warmer, friendlier office space in her basement. So that's another weird layer, this idea of like sort of almost like this Marxist read where it's like she's she's saving these people from the toxic capitalism of the workplace. The way I was interpreting kind of her basement tableau that she creates of all these corpses, they cut at one point to David Thornton. And then it's because we haven't talked about him yet, but he's in this movie. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captor speaking. Eric Bogosian. It shows him in that actor's spot. And then Barbara Sukova looks kind of like Alice Drummond's stand-in for when she's younger. So I also thought there was a recreating her family thing, which, again, very serial killer. I don't know what, again, what it's saying about the Carol Kane character is, is kind of up to your own personal interpretation. But the way I interpreted some of that stuff in the basement was less her, I mean, partially her recreating the office, but also her trying to fix her family. And recreated in a way that makes sense to her kind of warped interpretation of obviously what her family was to begin with. Because, yeah, more spoilers. Eric Bogosian, I guess, is sexually assaulting her as a teenager. Well, I can see that, too, with the Girl Scouts. Because the Girl Scouts are the ones that don't fit into that basement. you know. And I don't even know what their offense was. Because it feels like almost everybody that she kills offends her some way. She's almost very Hannibal Lecter-esque, you know, whether it's just that this guy's jerking it at work, the male boy who doesn't even get a name. I love that he doesn't get a name. You know, the Mr. Michaels who, you know, accidentally kills him, but it could be an accident on purpose type of thing. Just like she really isn't showing too much remorse. And, 
you know, Dahlia, I love your description of how she tries to revive him, which is that little tap yeah. to the chest. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, to your point, Chris, the Girl Scouts don't fit in, but they do fit in more into that recreating of the family thing. They could be the stand in for her. Right. And I mean, with Ed Gein, like in Deranged, like that's what he was doing was he was trying to, you know, he couldn't deal with the loss of his mother. So he was. I'm surprised that she let her mother go. Doing terrible things to corpses. Like, hey, you know, yeah. I just wanted to say, because you touched on how there's like this sort of true crimey element to the movie. And one thing that Tom Kalen said sort of inspired the movie was it was inspired by a real life serial killer. Um, Obviously, you know, the loosely, loosely, loosely inspired. But and I'm just going to read a quick clip from my book where Tom Kalen was saying that he remembers having conversations with Cindy about this English serial killer named Dennis Nielsen. He was a butcher in the army and a very repressed gay man who basically picked up many gay men parallel with Dahmer a little before Dahmer. In general, he would have very uncomfortable sexual experiences because he wasn't fully out, but he would kill them, usually through strangulation, And then he would keep them in the house for weeks and draw them in these sort of heartbreakingly beautiful drawings that looked like David Hockney drawings. And David Tennant played him in a series last year. And it's amazing. And it is exactly who she reminded me of. What's the series called? I forget what the name of it is. It's like three episodes and that's it. But it's David Tennant playing Dennis Nilsson. And he looks just like him. He looks 100% like him. It's really good. But that is exactly who she reminded me of. This movie takes the idea and kind of goes in a different direction with a female character, which I think is a lot more interesting than a male character in a lot of ways, because we've seen this male trope uh, over and over again. But it's called Dez. um, And I'd never heard of it. So I'm really excited to watch it immediately. Check it out. It's really good. It's real good. And Dent and... Yeah, David Tennant is, he, you know, unfortunately or fortunately looks just like him. Just put glasses on him and he looks just like him. It's shocking. He's really good. Seeing side-by-side pictures and yeah, it's really kind of creepy. Yeah, but then you see Carol Kane in this movie and you can see that kind of same weirdo energy that he had as a human being. And they, I think they really, I don't know, I love Carol Kane, but this role for Carol Kane is perfect. Like she's she's so always so mousy, but not, uh, I don't know. She's mousy without the malice, but this it's like mousy and just malice filled too. And you never see that. It's always one or the, it's always just one. She's always just playing the mousy character. But it doesn't feel like malice to me. It feels like, you know, it feels like she gave her dad what her dad deserved. She kind of gave her mom what her mom deserved. And it feels like she's kind of meeting out justice to a lot of these people. And she feels like an Avenger more than somebody who's just pure evil, you know? But what does she give her mother? Well, she gave her mother, she paralyzed her mother. Oh, 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 okay. I thought you, like, in the movie, right, prior to the movie, yes. And I do like how the flashbacks are told backwards that we start with basically the accident and then we kind of work our way back until we finally get Bogosian on the couch just like hey how's it going you know come sit next to me one of what five male characters in here and i know a lot of them don't get very much dialogue at all or if they do it's they're very one note i mean mailboy gets very little mr michaels is just an asshole michael dies right away yeah michael imperioli is the only one with any sort of real agency he and the guy that works in the copy room 
I think those two are the ones and she only really likes. Well, I guess she likes both of them. I would say that she's kind of flirting with Imperioli when she, when he's setting up the computer. Oh, totally. And then she's really into, I guess it's her boss, the, the African-American gentleman. She's really, and they even say like, oh, she really is flirting with him. They mentioned that he was, you know, given a job at the newspaper so that he would stay away from her because her, her father was, you know, also a massive piece of shit on top of being sexually assaulting her. So, man, Eric Bogosian, what a antithesis of the role i'm used to seeing him in but he plays it so well it's just like he's in it for three scenes that's it and it's his impact is felt throughout well because it's felt on carol kane's on dorian's life yeah she's freaking amazing carol kane is just always so good and just it's so right that she is the lead of this movie she needs to lead more movies and you know we talked about her being unhinged in the mafu cage years and years ago and she's great in that too and in that one it's almost the same thing where she she's obsessed with her father she thinks that she's doing the right thing even when she's harming people she really shouldn't be let out into public thus being caged up in there and just the way that she's interacting with lee grant's boyfriend and being very inappropriate and i just yeah she's so great she is always so great and no matter what it is and i'm i love i live for the movies where she actually gets to be the star you know like this hester street Mafu Cage. There's just a handful of movies where she really gets to be the one in charge of things. Because I grew up with her always being second banana, but stealing the show as Latka's wife. She was always so good when she showed up on Taxi. I'm just looking at her IMDb page, and she's been in so many things. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. Well, just her little turns and things like Scrooge. She's the best part of Scrooge when she's just... (laughs) I think she knees him in the balls at one point. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she's really good at unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt in a show where it's well cast as it is like just having Carol Kane on the show and her playing again, just she's kind of playing this character, but without the murderous thing. It's just kind of this like mousy neighbor who says weird things like she's great in that show. She's yeah. Yeah. I mean, I grew up with her, like I said, with Taxi and then, of course, Princess Bride. I mean, she, she's just been around for my entire life. And I just always love when she shows up. Well, I'm glad you both love the movie as much as I do. Well, I don't know about that. I was a little disingenuous when I was talking about who is Sidney Sherman because I have read your book. So I got to see a lot of the photographs that you had reproduced in there and read about her in there. But that scene with Mrs. Michaels, you really hit the nail on the head when it comes to just the use of montage in that scene and just the framing of things. I really appreciated that felt like it was a whole Cindy Sherman exhibit all inside of one scene. Yeah. And it's one scene that, what is it like two minutes? If that, and then, I mean, the the film noir elements in that movie, I mean, there's just so, there's so much richness and beauty in the cinematography that that alone warrants a conversation. And if you have any familiarity with her work, you can see her sensibilities throughout the film. Look at the opening credits. Holy cow, the opening credits are amazing. My God. I mean, just if your movie had those opening credits and was just middle of the road, people would still be talking about the credits. They're really good. They really kind of, again, just they set the tone for what this movie is going to be. One thing that I never really picked up on until I was reading some of the reviews was Barbara Sakawa's character of, what is it, Virginia, the person that's actually running the magazine at first, or 
running, quote unquote, because she ends up making Jean Triplehorn her axe man to give out all those pink slips. But her accent, people were comparing her to Ariana Huffington. I was like, okay, because I kept wondering, like, why does she have this thick accent? That seems like a very particular choice in this film. Also kind of looks like Ariana Huffington. Well, she's a German actress. And, you know, but the pink slips, I mean, she's running the show. And you see her when she she talk, the way that she talks to Nora in this very dismissive way. I think it's more that she just sees that as like the dirty work, you know, like just, you know, dealing with the little people, you know. So I think she's just, you know, you go distribute the pink slips. It's not my job to make your job easier. And that nice symmetry of Carol Kane. Doreen with the copy machine, and then just a few scenes later, you've got Virginia with the copy machine. And I like how we kind of go back and forth with that copy machine and kind of reverse the roles when it comes to now Doreen is the one that's in power. I mean, the Virginia character, I think, is just fascinating, you know, with with the nails and the pleather and the echinacea golden seal and the importance of fashion in the movie, you know, and the way that each of the characters dress and how the costumes evolve for each character sort of throughout, you know, and how like as as Carol Kane's character, as Doreen, the more people she kills, the more empowered she gets, the more stylish she gets. And then the Molly Ringwald's character, Kim, has all these really great sort of poochy-esque prints and bold colors and it really shows you know because the constant consumer magazine it's like everything is brown the lighting is drab like it's just this sort of very grim office space and so you can really tell that kim doesn't belong there because she's sort of like this this sort of beautiful bird of paradise with these bright colors and so just all the stuff that's communicated with the costume is i think fascinating in this film well, in that she's the only one that really recognizes what's going on. She's that canary in the coal mine. Like, hey, it's her. It's her. You know, she's doing this. She attacked me. You know, she's setting me up. And everybody's just like, oh, Doreen's so nice. Cassandra, shut up. I know, right? I mean, that's what it feels like. I mean, and then to the point at the end, Doreen's like, I'm going to call her and fucking taunt her at the end of the movie. Like, I like that, though. Because, again, that's why I said the malice thing. There's only one character she really shows malice towards. But there's only one character that's kind of onto her scent as it is. What well, is fascinating, too, that we have so many deaths that are off screen because we've got a few very powerful on screen deaths. But then I mentioned the the Girl Scouts that they just kind of show up. They're shown into the house. And then we do a hard cut and then we see them dead later on. But then also Mailboy, that his is one of the most gory deaths, but we never see his actual death. We just get to see the aftermath with that. What is it like a Cuisinart blade in his throat? It's just like. I love it that, you know, he gets taken out, but we're not just fetishizing the violence. This this isn't like a slasher film in the way that we have to show these creative ways of people dying. It's not Final Destination or Friday the 13th. But that's why it is feels so firmly rooted in true crime, because the true crime normally when it's presented is presented, I wouldn't say workmanlike, but like very matter of fact. And this movie, like... Yeah, she murders them in, you know, she murders the one guy by zapping him by accident. And then everyone else, again, it's kind of, you know, her doing it intentionally, quote unquote. But I like that it is just like, and she just kills him. And we don't even have to see it. 
but I do appreciate a movie that has the lead character killing kids because it really ups the stakes like in a way that like there are very few things you can do as a screenwriter to up the stakes of your movie short of putting children and animals in peril or just outright killing them. But again, like that's why in my mind, it's like she's trying to form a family and it's like and then she goes and gets kids and it's like and that's when it changes and that's when it becomes a lot worse and more again you can kind of see her mental state deteriorating obviously and she's smacking the knife in between the washer and the dryer i mean it's you see it and that's the blow off there but yeah killing of the kids is this anomaly because everybody else is associated with the workplace and so it is kind of like, you know, is she trying to protect the kids in some way, you know, in a way, you know, like in a way that she hadn't been protected as a child? Or is it that she's mad because the mom is being nice to the kids, you know, and the mom is so dreadful to her and she sees the mom being nice to the kids. And so maybe there's just this intense jealousy and kind of wanting to take control of the situation. But I also sort of respect the ambiguity, you know, yeah. that it's not clearly spelled out you know and i think that's one of the fun things about this movie is it doesn't make everything literal i think the only death that really affects her is her mother's she's so that's blase. the only one that's real yeah she's blase about everything else but then when it comes to her mother that's when she cries out and again that that being off screen is very effective that it's her walking into that room that layer of her mother's and just hearing that cry and then that great line from the guy who's taking the body away, just like, oh, this whole house smells of death. That's one of the, the reasons why I argue that she doesn't think that the bodies in her basement are dead. In her mind, there is a different like her mom is really dead, whereas the bodies in the basement, she's just moved them there. For a plot point that is often included in these kinds of stories about a serial killer who lives at home and probably has to kill their mom or dad, I, we've seen this boilerplate done a, a bunch of times. To your point, Dahlia, I think it's an insanely smart to sh or I guess I don't, whoever made the point that it's not shown that it's off screen because I don't need to see that. It doesn't we already know where like what interaction those two would have or how that would happen. But seeing the aftermath of it is so impactful because you see her like freaking out at her mom's corpse and it's sad and disturbing all at the same time. But I like that they, at Cindy Sherman, subverts your expectations by not showing it. Because like every other movie that approaches this, this trope of like the serial killer is at home with XYZ person who doesn't realize it. There was a movie this year that did it. There was a TV show I watched earlier this year that did it. Like I've seen it a couple times this year and I'm sure you guys have seen it in other things as well. But this one subverts the expectations in such a fun way. That I don't need to see Alice Drummond dying, but I do want to see how Carol Kane reacts to it, because that's the important part. I mean, I think that's what's fun about the movie is it subverts our expectations over and over and over again. I mean, Carol Kane driving away at the end of the movie being totally badass. I mean, it's like, who saw that coming? And I love that she gets the voiceover at the beginning and then the voiceover at the end and that the voiceover at the end is basically her cover letter. That's so nice. I'm coming to a city near you. <laughs> so good. And she's got uh, Jan Triplehorn's head in her bag, I guess. Somebody's head, I would assume it's hers. But Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, by the end of it, you're like, eh, she's not that bad. She still murdered kids, though. I feel like there's the moment where you're like, if you're into this movie, you got to give that part kind of a, all right, 
like fine i'm okay with that like you got to be okay with that because by the end of the movie you are kind of cheering her on which i think is the appropriate response because almost everybody she kills in the movie like you said mike essentially deserves it well that's why one of the things that i argue in the book is if you think about the trope of the final girl and i have a, a little carol clover anecdote in a second but, you know, you have the trope of the final girl who I always think of Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween. But, you know, the person who takes down the serial killer, who's sort of like the the kind of a little bit masculine, sort of tough last woman standing at the end of a horror movie. And so if you look at the movie from the lens of a traditional horror film, Doreen is the monster, right? I mean, Doreen is the one killing people and bringing them to her basement, right? She is. We've been talking about the similarities between her and other real life true crime serial killers, right? But if you look at it through the Carol Clover lens and Doreen is the one left standing at the end of the movie, then Doreen is the final girl, which means that Nora is the actual monster because Nora is who Doreen takes down at the end of the film. And so, again, that's what I think is so fun about the movie is it really makes you think differently about the horror genre, because the person who is accumulating bodies is not the monster, but is the savior. And the monster is the corporate monster stealing money from the company. It's very Dexter-esque. Like you mentioned, Mike, Hannibal Lecter. And they really, I mean, in the Hannibal TV show, they really lean on that. I think less in the movies, they the Hannibal Lecter character is like, eat the rude. But in the TV show, it's like, <laughs> like, that's the point of the character. But I don't know why this movie doesn't get brought up more. But like, I'm going to do everything I can to bring it up more, at least to people that are into this kind of thing. Because like, you know, Michael Imperioli is in this movie. This movie comes out two years before The Sopranos comes out. A TV show about an anti-hero. You could make the case that she's an anti-hero. Dexter sure as hell is an anti-hero. So I would, yeah, I would agree, Dahlia. She 100% is. Again, her killing the kids aside, which is kind of like, that's a kind of a hard moment to swallow. But again, like Tony Soprano does some pretty deplorable things in that show. And people are still on board with him. Same with Michael Imperioli's character in that show. So if you can get past it and get on board with the character, this is really a early on example of where entertainment would go for like a decade is the anti-hero and the Breaking Bads and the Tony Sopranos and the Dexter Morgans. And this character should be in that conversation, at least for the film versions of those kinds of stories. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll hear an interview with one of the writers of Office Killer, Tom Kalen. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping 
when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Well, I'm so curious how you got involved in show business because you've done a little bit of everything over the years. We have done a lot of different things. Yeah. I mean, I, it starts actually in high school where I was an actor, an amateur actor. I grew up in suburban, South suburban Chicago. There was a high school called Homewood Flossmoor High School that I went to, had a super involved, like developed theater department. There were two Irish Catholic brothers, twins, Tim and Tom Sweeney. Could they sound more Irish Catholic? And one of them was my theater coach and they were super ambitious. So like, you know, we did shadow box, which was, you know, a kind of edgy late 70s play in the late 70s in high school. I looked very young when I was 18, super young, like 14, 15. And I realized when I went to college, I would probably spend my career playing, you know, kids in movies. So first I was pursued journalism in college and soon shifted to visual arts, studied painting, went to graduate school that was in the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Then I went to the Art Institute of Chicago, um, and I got an, a master's degree first in photography and, and moved into video art. And, you know, video art was a lot of different narrative makers started from that in my generation or, or experimental cinema. It's like the generation that would show places like Collective for Living Cinema in New York or Anthology. The idea that you would make a shorter film and that would be the end point. It wasn't a calling card to try to make a longer work. That was what you were going to make. So yeah, I made then a short film there that got was in, in the Whitney Biennial shortly later. I moved to New York City in 1987 in the summer. Within two weeks, three weeks, I go to ACT UP, the first ACT UP meeting that I attend. So ACT UP had formed um, in March of 87 when Larry Kramer spoke at the Community Gay and Lesbian Community Center. I meet Todd Haynes super early. I'm pretty sure I meet him just informally in ACT UP. I think he's adorable. I have a little crush on him that we never go anywhere, but whatever. Um, and then he is having a screening of Superstar, I think at Artist Space or something. He collaborated on Superstar with this woman named Cynthia Schneider, who went to Brown with him, um, who's actually gone on to be a lawyer, but they collaborated. And I was blown away by Superstar. I mean, that he made me feel something about a movie with Barbie dolls was amazing to me. And that it had the sweep that it had. You could talk about anorexia nervosa and, and Karen Carpenter's struggle, but put it inside a bigger context. Yeah. And just the pure experimentality of the film, the boldness of it. It was like the kind I wrote Todd in a sort of embarrassing fan letter, basically saying like, this is the kind of movie I came to New York I wanted to make. And he was super kind and friendly. So from him, he was on the verge of making poison. And so I, you know, got to know through Todd, I met Christine we were not immediate, like, you know, Todd and Christine are like siblings or best friends. They went to undergrad together so close. And Christine and I were, had a, you know, more volatile start, I think. And, you know, more didn't immediately become, you know, but Christine's often the kind of person who'll call out your weakest spot, like a kind of sign of affection. So when I met her, she was like, oh, you have a forehead you could project a movie onto. Because, and, and you know, instead of me being horrified, it became a point of bonding because she was such a truth teller. And then, you know, Barry Ellsworth, who was the third member of this thing called Apparatus that the three of them did. So I was aware of like, you know, Jim Jarmusch and Spike Lee and what was happening in New York independent cinema at that moment. But it seemed very apart from me. They seemed 
funny to me thinking of it now, but they seem significantly older or of another generation. And Christine and Todd's group was much more focused on narrative film. I was more, you know, making kind of essay, this thing that was in the Whitney Biennial that's called They Are Lost Division Altogether is more like an essay film. So yeah, they started producing these short films. You know, Christine, it's not that well known, but Christine herself was a talented director and made a bunch of short films as an undergrad at Brown. And there was a sort of not that, you know, a discussed plan that, you know, Todd was going to direct a movie that Christine was producing. I was going to direct a movie that Christine produced. And then I was going to produce Christine's movie. But of course, Christine was such a incredibly brilliant producer and so called to it at some level. In another life, maybe she would have been the director and the producer as well. But at that point, and lucky for so many of us that she made the choice she made um, and pursued that. So I, when I was in New York for that year, it was this thing called the Whitney Program, which is the Whitney Museum's independent study program. It's very much on the avant-garde end of things. So I studied with like Barbara Kruger and Yvonne Rayner and art world people. There was a very significant critic named Craig Owens who died of AIDS, who was not that much older than me again at that time, but seemed much older. Yeah, and those guys all made a big impact. I, at that same time I was in the Whitney program, I was involved in this group called Grand Fury, which is a subset within ACT UP, which is an AIDS activist group. It's pre-internet time. It's analog time. We have a lot, a lot of face to contact. Like to figure out what you're going to do that night, you looked at a light pole in New York City where there would be flyers layered one after another. And that was social media. And so it's a much more, you know, an ACT UP meeting was a rowdy, lively, cruisy thing, actually. It wasn't a prim activist meeting where you just talked about politics. And so that was involving. I got swept into that world and saw them put together poison was present a bit but not like on set i was around on set a little bit but not a ton yeah and then i had been thinking i had i grew up in chicago the youngest of 11 children in an irish catholic family my parents are born my parents are both dead my mother was born in 1920 and my father was born in 1917 and I'm, my oldest sibling is 19 years older than me um he's old enough to be my father and my grandmother had a child, her oldest child, my mother, and youngest child, my uncle, who's the only surviving member of that family. There's 26 years between those people. My uncle is younger than my brother. Only in Irish Catholic families of a certain generation is that even possible. My father um, was going to be a priest and then became stopped following the Catholic Church and he became involved in criminal justice and social reform and inspired by uh, writers and te teachers like Saul Olinsky, very left-leaning idea of social reform. So he, there was a thing called the St. Charles School for Boys. He was the director of that. Um, then when I was growing up in suburban Chicago, he ran a thing called the National Council on Crime and Delinquency. And the late stage of his career, he worked for the state of Illinois parole department. So as a teenager, I was visiting Stateville. My mom and I, you know, it's like a tradition in liberal Catholics of their generation that you would be pen pals with prisoners. So my mom and I wrote to Sylvester Henderson, who was an inmate in Stateville Penitentiary, and I was 15 or 16. I visited the prison doing things that I didn't really realize at that time were unusual. And it really was not until after Swoon and on the way to doing other films that I actually realized that what I was doing in my life was connected to what my father had done, just from a different point of view. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, I um, was a giant fan of movies and 
I revisited your episode on All That Jazz, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. I was thinking of all the movies that formed me, and like one movie that really inspired me was My Beautiful Laundrette. Being in a Chicago audience, I lived in Chicago then, the Fine Arts Theater in Michigan Avenue, and like the gasp of heterosexual horror at that, like the frank, blunt kiss in the movie, and my shock, like blushing to my core, being like, just never having seen such a thing in a movie before. Realizing, I want to make the audience feel that, I want that to happen. Which I think is funny now, when you think of the time of long post Will and Grace, or in the time of, in the land of euphoria, pronouns are discussed and people are ambisexual in every different direction they could be. That seems like a naive time. But so that was very galvanizing. I was obviously a fan of Derek German because you can see that I imitate him in swoon if you look closely or not even that closely. Um, yeah. And other things like I was aware of the Warhol films, which weren't in distribution then. I've later, most in the last, God, in the last eight years, the book was published last year. But for eight years, I worked on this book that the Whitney Museum published, which is about the, the kind of catalog resume of the Warhol films. So it goes from 63 um, to 65. And I watched, I don't know, I've watched hundreds of Warhol films in the last decade. Um, so, yeah, all those things factored into kind of wanting and seeing Todd make the movie and describing this Leopold and Loeb story, which at that point was going to be one of three narratives. I was going to somehow weave into a half an hour film. Insane. And Christine was really the galvanizing force as any true producer would be and saw there was potential and encouraged me to shape that. I was lucky at the same time to be friends with Hilton Alls, who at that stage was writing for the village voice where I occasionally did teeny little bits of contributing writing, but mostly actually at that stage, I was an illustrator. That's how I made my money. Like, it's funny to think of that because of course, print is gone. I was friends with Hilton and Hilton was a super encouraging influence and did some collaborated on the script and did some of the really key um, writing and heavy lifting around thinking with me about what the story was about. It was amazing thing I think to have happened. I think, you know, we were so bold and quippy. I mean, we learned a lesson from Warhol, at least I did, saying things to the audience like, I believe in equal opportunity homicide, or that the movie puts the homo back into homicide. And, you know, it was like thinking about, you know, as a member of Grand Fury, most of our work was about making slogans and very pithy comments and texts. So part of that was, and I think that's generational. I mean, Todd was incredibly charismatic. And Christine in those days would defer and say like, oh, well, the boys are the star of the show. But the truth is, is Christine is as quippy and funny and great in front of an audience as any of us. In fact, better than many of us. So that's part of it is having some sense, I think, of how to put the movie forward in a way that it would be legible. And also being in like in a moment where you know people were freaking out about basic instinct, you know, that it was homophobic. And, you know, we were making jokes and saying, like, I'm sorry, but a lesbian with an ice pick who kills abusive heterosexual men does not seem like a bad thing to us. You got me to watch Office Killer again in prep for this, which I have to say in all humility, if that's possible, I was amazed that it's so much stronger than I remember it being. You know, that was traumatizing. I wasn't the director, but it was traumatizing about how completely negative the press reaction was. The movie sold to the Weinstein brothers. I made maybe more money in that single sale because of the representation I had as a writer and that sale than almost anything. But it was combined with having this absolute rebuke from the press. 
and sort of a total shaming or like, what were you thinking? This movie is completely ludicrous. So there was some, I, you know, I talked to Christine actually um, not long before this call and told you, told her I was going to talk to you. And she was saying like, no, the movie's incredibly ahead of its time. And it really is. I mean, watching it in the wake of COVID, especially, and all the issues like everyone's sneezing and viral in the office, everybody's being separated to go home and work on their laptops, which at that time, like in 96, none of us even, I barely knew what a computer was. We have been dot matrix printer um, in, the, in that movie. So, so that was interesting to think about that time. And yeah, to, to see the movie again was a little startling, I have to say. It's just how you miss, like, I, I mean, I always knew, I knew at the time, well, I knew, I thought it was funny as hell and dark as hell, but it was a kind of period of time when you like to make a joke around basic instinct or, you know, even worse, I would say publicly, which, you know, probably I met later met him and it probably pissed him off if he ever heard it, which was, you know, I said about Jonathan Demme's movie, I adore Silence of the Lambs. It's a feminist movie where a woman uses her brains to sell a crime and is amazing. I don't think it's a homophobic or transphobic movie myself. You're entitled to think that, but I don't think that. And conversely, while we're on the subject, I think Philadelphia is weak and dull. And it feels like an apology to people for having made Silence of the Lambs. And I wish Jonathan Demme didn't apologize because he should be proud of Silence of the Lambs. It's a movie I find inspiring and powerful. Like that did not go over well in San Francisco, for instance, at all. You could hear a pin drop when the certain people at that stage, you know, because I was also just like, I don't want to make movies about coming out. I'm not interested in like a happy station wagon and a Kali movie at all. And, you know, like the idea that heterosexuality as an institution is so durable that you could make double indemnity. And nobody watches Double Indemnity. Yes, it's a fiction, not a true story. But no one watches that and says, oh, those nutty straight people, they're fucking their brains out and it's making them kill people. Whereas with, you know, Leopold Loeb's case, having gay sex, you know, having sex with a, with a man obviously turns you into a murderer, no doubt about it. Being bold about that different take. And that's where Derek, for me, was really personal. There are certain filmmakers. He was one. Just because around punk and the feeling of those movies and then the most amazing thing of being at Sundance, which is where Swoon premieres and meeting him because Edward Second is there and he's warm and inviting and complimentary about my movie where I'm imitating him uh, blows my mind, you know? So yeah, fun, fun days to remember that. How did Office Killer come about? So James, Seamus and Ted Hope at Good Machine decided to do this initiative called Good Fear. It's interesting to think of it now because it's like, you know, Christine has collaborated with James in different contexts and Ted in different contexts. The truth of the matter historically is that Good Machine had made money on Ang Lee's first feature and were in a much more powerful position in the marketplace than it wasn't even called Killer Film. It was just becoming, I guess, Killer Films at that moment, at that transition. So they had more, and that we were always, I mean, I was at least, and I'm sure Christine probably was jealous a bit of their greater economic power and taken more seriously in the marketplace. And they didn't work at giant, bigger budget, but they quickly moved into medium-sized movies that we struggled to do. When we did I Shot Andy Warhol, for instance, it was amazing to be over a million dollars and have the resources that we had. So yeah, they were going to do a horror initiative. James, I guess approached a woman named Elise McAdam. I was curious if you've spoken, did you speak to Elise McAdam or track her down? 
who is at that time a graduate student in the Columbia University film program where James teaches still and I also teach. At that time, I didn't teach there. I met her once or twice. I didn't know her well. She's definitely the core of certain key things in the script. I mean, Doreen is her character. The fact that she lives in Queens, there's a, a lot that she built. She good. I went to darker and blacker comedy places than she went in the script, definitely. And kind of like B-movie places that she didn't go in the script. I looked for a little five minutes today, but I was like curious after watching the movie, do I have the shooting script? Do I have her draft? I must somewhere, because it's like 20 plus years makes it dip very difficult to parse exactly how and what you did. But yeah, so the the, the script had been written. I, I got the impression that Cindy and Elise had gone as far as they were going to go in terms of the script. And Christine was like, would you meet with Cindy and consider doing something? I was like, hell yes. So yeah, I met Cindy. That was amazing. Um, I found her super approachable. We talked a lot about like, you know, the Robert Aldrich movies. You can see, obviously, like the, the chair that brings mom upstairs and all that stuff is in the revision I did. And it's very much connected to, you know, or like serving food on a tray or some of that stuff. And just harkening back to like early 60s, those two key Robert Aldrich movies. I don't know how long. I probably worked for maybe four months, not a giant amount of time. I was around then when they roll into production. So I see her casting, Carol, Jean, Molly, Michael. I was trying to remember before the call how close we had just shot I Shot Andy Warhol. At the time we shot I Shot Andy, Michael is in the movie. Lily Taylor is the star of that film. Michael and Lily were a couple at the time that that film was made. And this is soon after. I think actually it's in Office Killer. They break up and they go different ways in terms of their relationships. And it's also Michael's not quite known in the iconic way that Michael is since known. And also the movie itself is like a, even in 1996, the movie was like a meta thing because those actors are in the same ensemble, you know, because Carol is from Hester Street and like another whole other generation, a whole other point of view. I adore it, like so legendary. You know, Molly was like, you know, a giant star, but since had become, had done adventures with Godard and like, like had done all these other things in life. And Gene was like still kind of a, in bigger mainstream movies and kind of a big star. So the combination of those actors in the same frame is one of the things. And now seeing the film, I find that that's, I took the most pleasure in that and sort of the wittiness of Molly. And it was you know, like a blast. I mean, I didn't, I got, I was around when I think they did like a table read or something and I got to meet the cast. And I mean, I, I totally respect Gene, but I, I didn't have the same actor crush as I had on Molly um, and especially on Carol. Gene, just in Basic Instinct a couple of years before, I can't remember if she was also the love interest in the firm. I mean, she obviously Waterworld right around then as well. So she's in some huge movies at the time. No, and I think because of that, I just found her more daunting because she was like a movie star. Whereas Molly was more instantly approachable. Molly at that point was so kind of wanting to just connect with people. Like not had been to, it's a very kind of unnatural existence to be a star as a teenager in her middle life, I think was partially just like, you know, having more just pleasure of being in life. Yeah. And Carol's amazing, just amazing. And watching that performance again, the levels within it and, um, yeah, or Barbara Sokova, who, you know, oh my God, like a Fosbinder, you know, God, um, and just an incredible, yeah, combination of stuff in that film. It's funny to think of that moment, I guess, too, because uh, I'm just in terms of where the culture has gone overall, where the corporate culture has gone. 
all of those things, which, you know, the 96, some context I think is very helpful to think about is like Cindy's work, which had been, of course, the untitled film stills, which are popular, but, you know, are just the beginning of the story. Then she does this, you know, I may be leaving things out, but then there's a body of work that became known the centerfold pictures, which are these horizontal formatted pictures, which, you know, were just snapped up by collectors and bought everywhere. And so, you know, around, I don't know the exact year, but 93, 94 in the height, or maybe even earlier, she starts at 92 in that sort of height of the AIDS crisis, when people are dying of wasting syndrome and having Kaposi sarcoma all over, she makes it just incredible series of images that are just, you know, with sex toys and about the rotting of the corporeal body and working with her. That's what I was super excited about. There's this um, famous British serial killer called Dennis Nielsen. And there's a book called Killing for Company that's written by Brian Masters. That's quite well written. I, for a minute, considered making something about Dennis Nielsen, but like it was even too dark for me. And so Dennis Nielsen, basically, I don't know if you know about that case, but like he it was a gay man who'd been in the army, very closeted. He would pick up younger boys, take them home. It's like, you know, the British Jeffrey Dahmer. In his instance, he was much more kind of poetic than Dahmer was. He would bathe the boys and pry the floorboards up in his house and keep them under the floorboards. And he made these drawings of them that are a bit like Hockney drawings. He had some skill as a draftsman. And there are these tender drawings of the corpses that look like sleeping boys. And they haunted my nightmares, all of this. So and that was like this idea of bringing someone home and the uh, like killing for company, the idea that Doreen is creating this world and and also like the, the corporeal rotting of the body coming out of Cindy's work and just trying to take things that were in her work. And because I was writing, I had no idea the directorial choices that would be made. Like, I don't know if I would have written such a script that I was directing. I was pondering that today. Like, I get like, how, you know, because there's such, and like, I don't, I have not generally done, I've done a little bit of comedic directing, but I'm not really a comedy director primarily. And like doing a black comedy, I would be, I think I was thinking today, like I'd be daunted in some ways by directing the script that I had written um, and felt terrible, honestly, that Cindy got, I just think it's a terrible thing that Cindy got criticized for the film in the way that she did, because it, I love now, there's an incredible wave now of reappreciation of the film, but at that time, I'm sure that wasn't fun for her experience. No, I read some of those reviews and they were just vicious. No, like they hate the movie. They all hate the movie. And people, I think, are smart and good. Some critics who should have known better, but I think it's about tone. And I think it's about kind of like anti-hero that we're going on the story. I mean, there's a complicated structure where you follow Jean's character through the narrative, but you don't root for the character. She's like a soulless, you know, she's the lens, she survives. She's the last girl or the final girl in that kind of horror formulation. We talk about the notion of who survives the thing, but it's absolutely you're rooting for Doreen. And it's, we're so used to Breaking Bad. We're so used to the exuberant anti-hero. I don't have any problem bringing empathy or compassion to the characters and making movies about, I really cared about, I care about Leopold Loeb. I care about Barbara Bakeland and Tony Bakeland. So it was a mystery to me a little bit. And, you know, like I was, I adored Bonnie and Clyde, which was, I, you know, I was five, six when that movie came out. That's, I, I certainly didn't invent the idea of an anti-hero with a flawed protagonist or whatever you want to call it. And that's, 
I think is part of the thing at that period of time that there was a kind of moral or just like an ick factor reaction around certain things that people rejected the movie because of. I'm trying to remember if you got flack for I shot Andy Warhol with just the treatment of the Valerie Solanas character, because I remember really liking her in that movie, even though, you know, she did a pretty bad thing. I shot Andy Warhol was really incredibly well, and I think deservedly like praised and deservedly so. Welcome to the Dollhouse won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. I'm always slightly grouchy about that. Julianne was on the jury that year, actually. Lily won a special jury prize for her performance. And, you know, Mary very quickly after that made American Psycho. And it was like, as a producer of I Shot Andy Warhol, it almost felt like to Christine and I that Mary had been snapped out of our hands by a bigger producer and thrown into this bigger movie. I don't know if you remember the story of leo dicaprio almost taking american psycho over i don't think christian bale i think mary knew she wanted christian bale but i don't think he'd been asked christian bale was not at all the giant star then that he was um leo dicaprio was a giant giant star and he got his hands on the script and was very committed to doing it and mary didn't want him to do it i don't i can't speak for her i don't think it was a diss about his talents or anything she just didn't think he was the right actor to play the part and that christian bale was really the right actor so there was like a nail biting period in the like where the giant it was the first time and i remember our circle or that i remember as a filmmaker understanding the power that an actor could have around content that wanted your content and previously we only, you know, we were the directors. We ruled the world. We were going to, we, we made the casting choices. An actor didn't choose what movie they did. It didn't work out that he did the movie. I don't remember exactly how that de-escalated. I don't think there was attack around that film because the f- humor and feminism, the way that Mary made what could have been seen as like an angry feminist in an earlier generation as relatable and human and flawed and funny and dimensional. So the movie got, you know, like an incredible wave of press and had international release. Of course, Warhol's famous. We were having a war at the time, of course, with Basquiat. And I still, to this day, think that Jared Harris is the better Warhol over Bowie, with all respect to Bowie, who is as close to a god as any person ever came to being. But, you know, it was like, it was still just always Bowie on screen in Basquiat. You never, I never believed I was watching Warhol. Whereas Jared, you know... He was so good. I always love Jared Harris and whatever he does, even like Lost in Space. Still like, okay, it's not even your voice, but I still love your performance. And it was very fun to meet his father on the set of I Shot Andy Warhol because in I Shot Andy Warhol, you can go back and see me three times if you would like to find me in the movie. Once, I'm a drag queen, briefly glimpsed, photographed by Nan Golden, amazingly. She was, she, unbelievably, Nan Golden was the set photographer on I Shot Andy Warhol. The second time, my back is to the camera. There's a sequence where I play, like, I don't know, I'm supposed to maybe be Avedon. I'm doing, there's like, I'm doing a fashion shoot at the factory and you just see my back clicking away at the camera. And the third time, I play the bouncer at Studio 54, wearing a giant wig and a handlebar mustache. You would never recognize me. Of course, Richard Harris came to set that day with like his glamorous wife, significant other, I don't remember her name or who she was, but like beautifully quaffed, amazing, took one look at me and was like, oh, you're the producer. You're in SAG rules. If you're above the line, you can appear on camera as a day player and not be paid. 
In other words, because I had lines, I had to say like, hey, Andy, welcome or whatever. And if we paid some, we were so tight on budget, we saved the $498 or whatever it was by having me play this role. And to have Richard Harris know this detail of filmmaking, call me out on it. And that's how I'm meeting him. I was like, oh, the shame, the horror. Well, so it's a, a lovely thing to think of seeing Jared at that stage because he was just such a talent. I mean, yeah, he is such a talent. And was not super known to people then. So, You worked with a friend of mine. You worked with uh, Howard Rodman on Savage Grace. How was that experience working on that film? That was a delight. You know, Howard and I were friends, I guess, through like, you know, independent, through, I was in the IFP, I was in the board for a while, like in the independent film infrastructure. He was super nice to me about Swoon and very positive. He's not that well known, but for a period of time, before I shot Andy Warhol gets made or around that time, I try to make a movie about Patti Smith and Robert Maplethorpe. I spend a bunch of time with Patti Smith right after, you know, Robert Stott, her husband, Fred Sonic Smith dies. I go to Detroit and go spend some time with Patti. I see all her notebooks and materials. I go to the Maplethorpe Foundation and that movie falls apart. Howard's super encouraging and great during that time. I get to know him a bit better. I sort of audition a few writers to write Savage Grace. I, so in, the, in I make Swoon, this is an insane side story. I make Swoon, we're in London in 93 or 92 around festival stuff. Christine has given me Savage Grace. I fell in love with the book. We go to the publisher and try to get the option. We find out that Andrew Lloyd Webber's company is trying to get the option. We're like, are you joking? So there's a person named Toby Moorcroft, who is their film development person. We meet him in London and we agree to work together. Unbelievably. For a couple of years, I have like access to the Andrew Lloyd Webber apartment in London. How glamorous. How fun. I mean, it was like a fun thing. There was an English writer who came on who wrote an adaptation of the script. We never saw eye to eye about the material. At all. So that script has nothing to do with the movie I wanted to make. There was like, for a minute, I tried to revise that script and it was so far from anything. So it died right around I shot Andy Warhol, dies in 96. So from like 93 to 96, I try to make Savage Grace the first time. And then it comes back around in 2006 because I never lose contact with the two authors of the book. And I'm like, Christine, I don't care how impossible this movie is. I want to make it. So yeah, we optioned the book for a modest amount of money. We hire Howard. Howard writes a first draft pretty quickly, maybe 16 weeks or something. And then some not huge amount of notes around that script. Some of the key things are already in that first draft. Um, he revises it. Then I write Julie. I had known just slightly like I'd met Julie during safe and I guess, yeah, it was probably during safe. She's amazing. She remembers everyone. So I was like, you'll never remember me. She's like, no, of course I do. So I, I do what I always do with an actor that I'm offering a role. I write a personal letter to them offering their part and telling them kind of why I'm offering them the part. And she read super quickly, like a less than a, to maybe less than two weeks after that, we were having lunch together. She was amazing. She liked some, I, I don't know if it's true of all male actors, but most male movie stars I have met that you have that lunch with, they do not end the lunch and tell you. You leave the lunch and you're like, was it good? Was it bad? Did I cast you? What happened? And you sometimes wait, like, I'm not joking, a month to finally hear back from the agent who says, they're not going to work with you. And you go, oh, fuck. Whereas Julianne was like, I'm working with you at the end of the lunch. And that was, and she, you know, kind of committed and all the way through. So that was, uh, yeah, 
that was the thing that made it happen, basically. And Howard uh, was a delight to work with. He, we, it was a, a great collaboration. I had never did somebody's script that I did not write. He's just a great listener and has great instincts for behavior and psychology and dialogue. And um, yeah, I don't know. It was, a, it was super fun. And he, I don't know, he, uh, we got close in certain ways that were also just helpful in a kind of, I don't know, subtext or human way of thinking casting. He came to set. He was around, I don't know, for about a week of shooting. All the Spanish people were shocked. They're like, you allow the writer on set? <laughs> because apparently in Spain, <laughs> they chased them away. Howard's novel, recent novel, is exciting. And he's trying to um, turn that into a series, I believe. So, yeah, but that was a great collaboration. And I learned things working in that different way. It was great, I think, just in so many ways when working with someone else's script. It's somewhat more, it's liberating to work with somebody else's writing in certain ways. It's easier to, for me, it's easier to find the kind of subtext and structural things in the script. And when you write it, I, it's, I have to do way more work to sort of figure out, to separate the distance between what the difference between the part of my job, which is writing, and the part of my job, which is directing. How long have you been teaching? God, forever. For a really long time. Yeah, I've been teaching at Columbia since 90, the fall of 96. So ages. Like I taught Jennifer Lee, who is now the head of, you know, Disney, who did Frozen, or Phil Johnston was my thesis student who did Wreck-It Ralph and Zootopia, you know, or I mean, just on and on. Like the, um, or Clara Roquet, who just won the Goya in Spain for her first feature. I teach unbelievably talented students, many of whom have way bigger careers than I have. My favorite one is that um, uh, Moira Demos and Laura Ricciardi, who made Making a Murderer, the limited series. You know, Moira was my thesis student. I think Laura graduated in producing, technically, um, had been a lawyer before. They were making this amazing doc. You, of course, probably have seen Making a Murderer. But at that stage, you know, like nothing had finished in the story. And at that time, all we understood about storytelling was like 90 minutes to 100 minutes. It was a doc. If you were lucky, the doc would sell to public television. Or maybe if you really were a rock star, HBO would buy it. Never would anybody imagine that you would have eight or 10 episodes of something. So, yeah. And that's one that was a kind of fascinating for me being realizing that the people I were teaching were reinventing the forms in ways like that they had the vision that that, you know, and also that the medium change in television took off. But yeah, so teaching's great. And it's a, you know, uh, such a great collection of people teaching there, like Ramin Barani or James Seamus or you know, just a incredible colleagues to work around. Are you working on, on any projects at this time? I am. I'm working on a limited series, which I wish I could tell you about, but I'm like, just in a kind of vault because of course mostly what i do is based on true stories and i'm in a somewhat vulnerable position around rights because i'm just getting the option of a book that's attached to it but what i can tell you is it's about a famous fashion designer and it is a kind of rise and fall story that spans the early 60s to the mid 90s right now i'm thinking of it as a limited series it's a very confusing moment in the film and television world like, you know, Christine, the sage genius, literally cannot tell me for sure if the things I'm developing should be features or limited series based on market and money concerns. I did this um, episode called Pride, a part of a limited series called Pride for FX. It was about LGBTQ civil rights in the U.S. That was really fun to do. It was very different working in TV, just so different. It's a faster pace, just in every detail, it's different. 
but I didn't find it oppressive or crushing, actually. And I found FX bold, actually. So I don't know. I feel like it's, if I can't sell it as a limited series, I'd make it as a feature, I guess. It's a really weird moment because I don't know if the feature is going to, like, could you make all that jazz now? Could you find, could honestly, could I finance Savage Grace right now? I don't know. I mean, it's just, that's, and to me, that's a really sad moment to think about that we might be losing that kind of feature film. The real truth of the matter is to be a director, an independent director in the kind of career I've had. I've not been able to direct nearly as many times as I would have liked to have directed. And that, you know, you seize every opportunity you have. I'm like, I love, that's like, I got to produce for, I got to produce for Rose Crochet and, and Gwen Turner on Go Fish or Mary Heron on Andy Warhol. I feel involved in those movies or I got to write for Cindy and Office Killer. And that was also like an incredible um, honor. Um, but yeah, you have to be resourceful. There are so few, I mean, it's like even thinking about Fosse at the height of his career and, you know, whatever. I mean, that's incredible. The run of what he's happening, but how long that would happen, and even the slightest misstep, you know, like thinking about the reception of star 80 or thinking about the reputation of star 80 and how that probably would have complicated future movies and other things beyond it. And look at star 80. Are you people crazy? But it's really all that jazz for me. I mean, I love also cabaret. I loved Cabaret more when I was like a younger person as I'm older, all the jazz resonates more deeply. Professor Kalen, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Oh, it's my pleasure. It was fun to talk to you. Totally. It was, I enjoyed having our conversation together. We were talking about Office Killer, and I'm still so flummoxed by the history of this movie and just that it came and went and people never saw it. So, so strange. So, so strange. It's just, of all the movies that we've talked about, I mean, every single one of them that is, you know, lost or has had difficulties, it's so much more well documented than this one is. And I'm so glad, Dahlia, that we have your book in order to see the behind the scenes as much as we possibly can glean. And then just such a, a rich study of what's actually happening in this film. I really have to applaud you. I thought your book was fantastic. And this isn't folks at home. This isn't like a little tiny, you know, monogram type of thing. This is huge, nice, well done and beautifully laid out, by the way, book about this film and highly worth your time. Thank you. Yeah, it was funny when I was working on the book. At one point, I remember I was really trying, I was struggling with how to organize the book. And I went to Skylight Books, which was my local bookstore in Los Angeles. And I just kind of was looking through all the film books to see how other books about a movie were organized. And it, that was the first time I realized, oh, people don't really do this. Until they did. <laughs> that most books are, you know, like David Lynch, right? And then it's like each chapter is a movie. 
or you have, you know, horror movies and then each chapter is a movie. But like, apparently nobody writes books on one movie, which to me seemed really surprising. But clearly there's a lot to say about this movie. And then, you know, I also had a lot of fun with it. I have at one point in the book, I argue that it's the unacknowledged sequel to Basic Instinct. And just sort of, you know, again, kind of playing with the notion of, I believe it was Godard who just passed, who said, you know, that every actor is a composite of all the roles that they've played before. Just the fact that, you know, like someone like Gene Triplehorn and Molly Ringwald, you know, they there's a lot of weight to them because they are kind of carrying on all these other roles that they've played. And yeah, it's just such a fascinating film. Yeah, now it's a cottage industry. All these monographs that are out there. It's just like, wow, okay. What isn't going to have a book written about it? I mean, Dahlia, you were leading the charge before it became a, a, yeah, like a, God, there's so many. And so many are just like, I don't know if we need that. They're like the 33 and a third of films. Well, I don't know that I will ever write a book on one movie again. I feel like this was, this was my labor of love. Your love of it definitely comes out. This is like, if I were to write a book about Black Shampoo, it would be as lovingly written as what you did with Office Killer. That's the other thing that's nice about this movie. Should this movie ever get a proper release, hopefully in the next five to ten years, everybody should still be alive. And everybody can still be involved in a substantive way in any, I mean, maybe not Cindy Sherman, given what just kind of, I guess, you know, the way this movie was treated, I wouldn't want to be involved either. But Gene Triplehorn, Molly Ringwald, Carol Kane, like hopefully this movie gets some sort of proper release. Hopefully they're involved in a commentary or something. And hopefully Dahlia is involved as well. I I will point out, because I don't know, we haven't mentioned it yet, that this is the 25th anniversary of the movie. Uh, And obviously, you know, Miramax isn't exactly getting on top of that to put out a, you know, special edition. I mean, it's not the movie is not even on Netflix. So depressingly, it's hard to imagine that they're ever going to re-release this movie. There have been less weird things released and more weird things released than this. So I could hope. I mean, again, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It definitely deserves to be out there. And at the very least on a streaming platform so people can watch it easily. Even Tubi or Pluto or something. Jeez. I know those aren't great options, but better than rooting around on the internet for why it. isn't it on shutter that's actually a really good question i don't know shutter, shutter probably pretty, they probably don't know for it yeah pretty good place for it yeah hey shutter does anybody know anybody at shutter <laughs> well yeah actually i think i do know somebody who uh, worked on a recent documentary that's going to be coming up on shutter in october so why don't they have office killer or kino or shout factory like or arrow or vinegar syndrome like how many of them are there I know that there are more movies under the sun than just Office Killer, but like, again. But yeah, I don't think Miramax cares. And if Miramax doesn't care, then. But let's not end on a sad note. So I was interviewing James Seamus, who was the executive producer of this movie and has done a whole bunch of other amazing things like Brokeback Mountain and Ice Storm. And I was talking to him and I can't remember how it came up. I somehow I think I was talking about the whole final girl thing and how it was this really interesting twist on that trope. And he said, oh, he studied with Carol Clover when he was at school. I can't remember if she was his thesis advisor or dissertation advisor. And then he had stayed in touch with her. And when he connected with Christine Vachon to produce this movie, he actually had a dinner party at his house 
can't remember if Cindy was there, but it was definitely Christine Vachon and Carol Clover, you know, and I just said, I was like, I wish you had recorded this, you know, like this is something that people would pay money to hear this conversation, you know, and just like what sort of like an epic cultural touchstone that must have been. Yeah, to be a fly on the wall for that, right? Yeah, just just incredible to kind of have that conversation. All right, guys, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Imagine, if you will, that the most frightening things on Earth are about to come out of the darkness. They will look surprisingly like your neighbors, your friends, your family. Dawn of the dead. There is nothing you can do to stop it. It's too late. It's coming to a theater near you. Dawn of the dead contains scenes of violence that may be considered shocking. No one under 17 will be admitted from United Film Distributing Company. That's right. We'll be continuing Shocktober with a look at George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Dahlia and Chris. So, Chris, what is happening with you, sir? You're keeping me busy. I'm keeping myself busy. We're talking about the new Lord of the Rings show every week. I'm still doing the culture cast, still doing scary stories we tell, talking about some 80s cop shows with Barney Miller and Columbo. So all of those myriad of things, you can find them over at my website, cstashy.com, which is just a link tree to all the podcasts, but that's where you can find my stuff. And Dolly, what's keeping you busy? I am finally beginning to tiptoe my way into my next book which deals with memory in sort of contemporary American film and television narratives. And because I am in the very early stages, suggestions would be great. And you can email me. You can get my email through my website. This is Dahlia.com. You can DM me on Twitter. My handle is Dr. Dahlia, Dahlia Schweitzer, all one word on Instagram. But yes, movies and TV shows, I've been starting to accumulate a list. And I'm sure there are a million that I haven't thought of. But, you know, stuff like uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Memento and Severance and Shining Girls and just all these sort of movies and TV shows that engage with memory in some way would be gratefully appreciated. So send them over. I know your your audience probably has a lot of really good ideas. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, you can check out some of those other shows that Chris is talking about. Jabby Detective, Dreams for Sale, Life and Times of Captain Barney Miller, Ranking on Bass, Podcast of Power, Man, oh man, they are all available where finer podcasts can be found. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. (laughs) 